You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. When you bring foreign buyers and investors and hook them up with uh, Israeli companies, and those Israeli companies, thanks to that connection, they export more, they close a deal, then it, it's, it's amazing. It, it's amazing to see that the government helps business. Um, and it's um, sometimes it's faster to see results. When you look at uh, trade policy and you think of how long it takes us to negotiate a bilateral trade agreement or how long it takes us, for example, to negotiate uh, an agreement in the WTO, these things are very, very long. They're very high level. They're, we're, we're flying high at 30,000 feet, uh, enabling trade, enabling um, um, you know, cross-border uh, transfer of information for electronic commerce and all these very big things. But it takes time until they trickle down to business. Um, and I think that's one of the issues. Uh, the, the perspective you have when you work on policy is from a different angle. That was Nir Baranga. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. Nir is the Director for Trade and Services and Investment at the Department of Foreign Trade Administration of the Ministry of Economy in Israel. Nir is one of my earliest colleagues at the ministry. We started around the same time and remain kicking and screaming. He is a frontline negotiator leading bilateral, plurilateral, and multilateral services negotiations for Israel. When he visits Geneva, we usually talk about many things besides trade, and postcards are one of them. We wanted to do this podcast for some time, but fitting it into our busy schedule has been challenging. Luckily, during his last visit to the WTO for the ongoing joint initiative on e-commerce, we managed to find some time to talk and record this interesting conversation covering his professional career and how his career path has changed a couple of times, and how, in hindsight, it all makes sense. He also provides an insightful view into what it means to be an international trade negotiator, going back to the Trading Services Agreement negotiation, TISA, which was one of his first experiences in international trade negotiations. We could have also talked about many other things, but perhaps those conversations are left for another episode. I am working on a couple of episodes, so stay tuned. I can't wait for you to listen to this one. Subscribe if you still need to. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Nir, I'm really happy to have you here as a guest of the podcast. We've talked about I've had many guests that we've talked about it for a long time, but I also feel like with you we've had talked about it for a long time, and finally it's happening, so I'm really happy. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I know that you are different to my previous guests. You actually do listen to podcasts, so <laughs> I'm, a bit, uh, I'm a bit worried because you, you seem to be an expert. No, no, I just, you know try here and there. Not an, not an expert on podcast, not yet. <laughs> but uh, Nir, like, uh, tell me about your origin story. Where, where are you from? Uh, well, how far back do you want to go? From the beginning. <laughs> Let's go to the beginning. <laughs> so I was born in Beersheba, which is a desert town in Israel. 
and um, I grew up in Israel uh, and then moved around a bit because of my father's work. So I lived a bit in the U.S. Oh, in the U.S. Um, and I completed my studies uh, in Israel and I, I moved around. I studied here and there. So um, basically from Israel with a bit of uh, American education. What did your father do? Uh, my father is a scientist. A scientist. Yeah. And you were not attracted to that? Attracted is a hard and very, very strong word. Um, I actually um, I actually am an engineer. Ah, so kind of a bit. Uh, yes. so, so in a way, I did, I did continue in the scientific uh, path. Uh, my bachelor's is in materials engineering. Um, and um, that was the course I was on initially. Um, so uh, right after my uh, military service, which is uh, compulsory in Israel, uh, I uh, went on to studying uh, materials engineering. I studied uh, semiconductors and electrical uh, materials. It was the biggest thing at the time, um, but it didn't hold. Why? <laughs> because, I mean, I do see some connection to some of the things that you're doing. Some of the topics that you're discussing do have to do with this, but why didn't, why didn't it hold? So I've always been attracted to working with people. And that's not with, yeah. Yeah, and um, you could take the best uh, equipment in laboratories and you know high-tech high-end things but still I was missing I missed the human touch um, and it took me some time to realize that um, and um, when I did realize that I I did my first career change uh, but let's go a bit back uh, when when you were growing up did your father try to influence you to go into something similar that he was doing, or this just came to you as a, as a decision on your own? I think it was very clear when I was growing up that um, in order to succeed in the world, you need a stable job. Yeah, and so. um, engineering seemed like a very stable profession for me. It seemed like a, the right path. Some of it was spoken, some of it was... Uh, undercurrents, but it was there. Yeah, something similar happened to me. Uh, I wanted to go into film directing and my father said like, no, you need like a career that is solid. And in my case, it was the law. I think that engineering might be even more, more solid than the law. Um, engineering is solid, <laughs> very, very solid. Um, but I was always e even even before I started studying engineering, I was always on the, you know, uh, the border between um, soft skills and hard skills. So one of the things I really enjoy doing, and I'm still, uh, I still practice today, is is photography. Um, I started um, taking pictures when I was 14, and I think photography, especially that time when I was doing black and white and I did my own processing and printing. Um, it, it wasn't just the art of it, it was also the technical aspect yeah. of it. So I, I always liked both things. And I guess that's pretty much where it started. Uh, um, doing both the technical and scientific side, but also the artistic and more softer side. I did... Uh I also did uh, photography in high school, and we had we had to process our pictures, and I just love that like processing. And we were in the dark room, and the smells of the chemicals. Like yeah. even if I smell them now, like it would bring me back to that the time. It's it's exactly what happens to me. Yeah, uh, especially the the vinegar using the vinegar as a stopper. Uh, that was, uh, I mean, when you work in a professional lab, you don't use vinegar, but when it's uh, at home. So, you, um, up, up to today, the, the smell of vinegar reminds me of a dark room. Yeah, and uh, at the time when I did it, it was not like the cool thing to do. So the ones who were doing <laughs> photography, we were like the, the outcasts. But like, you, you <laughs> felt that you had like, this community that understood you, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I can get that. 
Okay. And actually, I, fe I feel like the new, I mean, technology is good. I'm not going to say technology is bad, but <laughs> it lacks that uh, tactability, that like romance, that like, uh, I don't know, like I remember looking at the picture when you were processing it and when you were putting it, fixing it on the paper. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, but you also have to take into account that on one hand, it's instant gratification today. But on the other hand, do you remember all the stress? Yeah. I mean, did I expose it correctly? What will come out? Will the film come out? Will I burn the film while I process I, I it? I messed up so, so many yeah. points of, of conflict and things that can go wrong. Um, so there was a lot of tension around that. I, I remember the stress, but then it was so good to see something come out. And then you also had to like take 24 or 36 pictures and <laughs> until yeah. the end you could see, not, not before. Right. Yeah, that was. But I, I only did it in high school. I wish I could do it again. It was really good times. But uh, I think I remember also you telling me about your your grandfather. You were close to your grandparents. Um, no, my my grandfather died uh, when I was nine. Um, but um, I I think I may have told you that. Recently, my uh, my father translated my grandfather's yes, memoirs. Yes, was it? Yeah, um, and I read them a few years ago when when they, my father published them. He actually published it as a book, and and it, it made me think a lot about the stories that I actually didn't know and that I would have wanted to know. But you told me that you had like this project in mind uh, of going back because the. the this is, I'm, I'm recalling this, so correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But you said something about some of the, the projects you are in the, in the book that your father published, like they would skip through many steps. Uh, and then you would be yeah. like, what happened in between that? And you would like try to go in and fill in the blanks. Yeah, so, so that's a, a kind of dream project that I'm thinking of. And hope, hopefully I'll get to it one day. And, and it's really using my imagination and um, the way I see the world today to fill in the gaps that exist in my grandfather's story. Um, because I don't, know, I don't know why they weren't in the memoirs and I don't know if it's, it's things that were lost in translation, but um, there are amazing stories there, and um, I, I hope to be able to tell tell the story in a, maybe in a different way. But uh, that that was one of the ideas I had. Yeah, I remember. It's amazing you remember that. No, because I I thought it was like an amazing thing that you normally don't hear about, and I was wondering if that that had like an impact on you, the, uh, those stories when they were told. Or maybe only now are you realizing the impact that they, it had on you? Um, uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. Uh, it's a big question. I mean, you asked something very, very clear, but, but I think the answer is quite complicated. I think anyone growing up um, in a Jewish family in Israel, maybe in other places in the world as well, that uh, second and third generation to parents and to people who survived uh, the Holocaust and who lived in Europe of World War II. Uh, any one of us still has effects uh, that we may or may not be aware of that our parents uh, got from their parents and they, they, um, they uh, you know, forwarded it to us as well. Um, none of, n not all of these things are very clear. Some of them are subtle, um, and you realize them only when you become yourself a parent. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, being a father um, emphasizes these things, uh, as, especially as my kids grow older and they're teenagers now. Um, and adding to that the memoirs, it kind of makes it, the picture much clearer. Because I experienced that, I experienced that um, twice when I had my kids. Like I started to understand a lot of the things that 
would happen in the past that I had no, I didn't, I didn't understood at the time, but then I understood when I had my kids. And also when my parents passed away, I started to think about all the stories that maybe will be lost forever. That if, if they're not uh, recollected somehow and they're uh, kept in the family, that they will just be lost forever and that would be tragic. Uh, and that's why now I pay attention more about, I want to pass that along to my kids through, through me telling them stories, to, through trips that we do as a family, yeah. through different ways, even through this podcast, to have like a record of my kids then in the future. As I speak to some of my guests, I also relay some of my stories and they will be kept on and live on forever. That's something that maybe it's a bit egotistical, but <laughs> 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 that's something that only now I realize and before I had no intention or anything about uh, doing that. Um, it makes me think about something um, if, that I can relate to what we talked about earlier about photography. Yes. So I have, I don't know, maybe 10,000 pictures on my hard disk nowadays, but I don't have a photo album. And the, the pictures that are printed and are put in an album are there even if they, their colors fade or whatever, but there's something physical, something you can look at. Um, my, um, my grandparents, um, you know, they smuggled pictures out of Romania when they left Romania into Israel. They weren't allowed to take pictures, but they smuggled them out. And we don't have many, uh, but we still have those memories. And if we look at the fact that today we have thousands of online images, I, I feel that we don't have physical memories. Um, so it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think stories uh, are not enough. We, we need to, to build some sort of collective memory, some sort of, um, yeah, something to be remembered by, but not just from the egotistical point of view, or maybe exactly from that <laughs> point of view. Um, like to, to say, we, yeah, we were here, we have an impact. We, we did do something, we were part of this world. Yeah, I mean, because it makes you feel connected. Like you're not alone, like you're connected to yeah. a line of people who came before you. And that, that, that means something. But anyway, let's not get too <laughs> philosophical, or I don't know how to put it. But then, so you went to engineering school, and what was your first job? Well, my first uh, real job was when I, um, when I left engineering school. So, uh, and, it, and it's funny, it's a funny one. I worked, um, I actually, studied for my master's uh, and I worked on electro-optics and I didn't like it. And a friend of mine said, listen, I have a friend who sells plasma TVs and um, you know, you do electro-optics, plasma TVs are electro-optics in a way, why don't you talk to him? Maybe he needs someone to help him. And I went and met this guy who owned a DVD store and sold plasma TVs. And I started working in uh, home electronics and selling plasma TVs. LCDs were just coming out. Plasma TVs were like $20,000 a piece. It was a complete high end. Um, and my first job was there as a, as a project manager for um, what we, we call smart homes. Um, at first, a smart home was a home that had a home theater in it, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you know a remote control that controlled the lights. Yeah. But uh, as time went by, I think I was there for six or maybe even more than that years. Um, things got more and more complicated and complex and and beautiful things that you could do, um, and that that was my first real job, and that's where I. I fell in love with business. And uh, well, in parallel to this, I think that Israel was a success story in economic development. Yep. Uh, how did you experience this 
living in Israel. What were the changes? How, how was it reflected on your day-to-day -day life? Wow. So, um, even before that, when I was still, uh, you know, in my teens and first years of, of um, university, uh, Israel experienced a, a boom of economic development, um, which uh, most, mostly um, you could realize by the fact that it was opening up to the world. Um, a lot of high-tech R&Ds started uh, establishing in Israel. A lot of uh, international, um, most American um, brands started popping up. Um, uh, if it was uh, in uh, food or, uh, or basic retail, um, and most of them didn't succeed in the Israeli market. But at first, uh, I mean, the, when Starbucks came over, McDonald's, and all those American brands, um, it kind of signaled that Israel's open to the world. Um, and then um, when I was already... If, we skip forward to the early 2000s when I made that first career shift, um, there was a lot of money in Israel. Uh, there was a lot of international business, uh, a lot of inflow of uh, uh, investments, and, um, and Israel became much more of a consumer uh, you know, market than it used to be. Um, and then, the first thing to go and rise were all these high-end uh, systems, and um, you know, in 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 parallel to having high-end cars and like more expensive cars on the road, people started getting better TVs and better audiovisual systems, and then at one point, uh, customs. I remember this: the customs on electric. Uh, um, on, on TVs and electrical systems came down from something like 30% to 5 or, or to null. I, I, it was, but it was just a game changer and it just gave a boost to the market. So I got to kind of experience that firsthand without even knowing <laughs> where it stems from. And then knowing that you would actually work uh, in a related field to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was just like, I remember the first a few shipments that we had where the prices were lower and we had this but we so we pre-sold the equipment and it hasn't arrived yet so what prices do we sell them at i remember all those things and um now from my perspective as a as a government official it's like why don't importers give the benefits to the consumers but then <laughs> as a uh, as a retailer we looked at things differently <laughs> And what imp uh, so th this is very interesting. But what impact did it have, like in the culture, in the culture of Israel? Do you did you perceive any impact of this economic development in Israel? Uh, I I think that, like many other places at that time, um, there was a surge of popular culture coming in. Um, it was easier to get. CDs and uh, to get music, uh, DVDs, um, uh, movies. Um, we started uh, getting seeing uh, multiplexes, you know, yeah. uh, so so you could go. Um, and basically, um, I I call it a bit of Americanization. There there was a lot of it uh, from the culture point of view. Yeah, I think that happened everywhere in the world. I mean, the things that you're telling me, I completely can relate to how it happened, and I guess that pretty much anyone in any country can relate. But they, it also, you telling me this, it sounds like, it, the stories that you're telling me, it sounds like they're like 50 years ago, and they were not so long ago. <laughs> no, not that long. <laughs> <laughs> But then you said you had another shift in profession. Why was that, and when, when was that? So, um, as I was, um, working in this retail and doing these projects, um, I started thinking about the fact that Israel is going more and more into high tech and there was this boom that I was missing out on. 
And I felt that even though my clients were, a lot of them, uh, my portfolio consisted a lot of uh, international clients. Um, so I thought I should, I should stop having Israeli or foreign clients in Israel. Maybe I should start reaching out. And that's when I, um, I decided to make a move into the high-tech uh, sort of um, business world. I started actually with uh, my next job was domestic sales of services, of high-tech services in Israel. Um, but then just after that, um, I, um, I graduated from my MBA <clears throat> and I joined a startup uh, that uh, provided... Um, uh, fraud prevention solutions for banks and financial institutions. Um, and then I, I kind of started seeing the world from a business perspective. Yeah. And, so. and what, what was the decision to study an MBA and do you think it was, it helpful, it, it was helpful in your world view? I have mixed feelings about MBAs in general. Mm. Um, but it was a it was definitely a necessary step, and I think that for many, it is a necessary step. Um, there's a fine line between understanding uh, business and marketing and sales and being a professional marketer um, and uh, business developer, for that matter. Um, and the greatest advantage that I had in my MBA in, in Tel Aviv University um, was a program um, that was a cooperation with the Wharton School. Um, and um, I think it was called the Global Consulting Program, um, if I remember the acronym right. Um, that GCP was a hands-on project to take an Israeli company and provide it with strategy and tools to compete better in the American market. Um, and there is no uh, substitute for a hands-on experience like that. And when you have the best professors with you and, uh, and people from business with you and you have a real case to work on, then uh, I think I, I wouldn't have gotten that experience any other way. Um, and um, that gave me the real appetite for international uh, business and uh, yeah, I agree that uh, there's no no better way to learn than to actually do it. And I think that when you went to the so this probably was really helpful. Not all MBA programs are like this, and mm -hmm. so on. So maybe that's something to consider. But then when you worked in the startup, you were really had you not done it during the MBA, you were done doing it like on a daily basis, doing uh, the real work yeah. on the with a lot of, I imagine, limited resources and a lot of <laughs> improvisation um, and a lot of passion also. Um, you make it sound so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, limited resources, a, a lot of passion. Um, the, um, I have one experience with a startup company. I don't, I don't have several. But from my experience with a startup, you fall in love with the idea. The, the, the founders, they, they had this amazing idea and I just, I wanted to do anything possible to make it work. And that was the feeling with the whole company. It's this super drive that people share like an ambition that this product is going to change the world. You truly believe that, um, and it helps helps you get over quite a lot. Um, so, so yeah, I I, um, I use that drive um, to reach places that, in hindsight, you were like, how? <laughs> how how did you manage? Um, and um, I I spoke and met with people uh, in banks in Cyprus, Greece, um, in the UK, which was my uh, most important market, 
and, and, and you know, I just had to understand their needs and provide them customized solutions based on our platform. And it was just, um, it, it was a thrill. It was really thrilling. And then we are in your third life. Like there was another change. How many lives now? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, now my third major change, uh, I guess um, very major, um, and that's when I moved from, from business to, to the government. I, I mean, like from you telling me the story, I do see a connection, and I do see like the reason why you made any change. But at the time, did you see it, or were you completely... Uh, did you have faith in every step, or were you? Did you have doubts? I imagine you had doubts also. Um, I always have doubts, and I think that um, one of the things that helped me always make changes and evolve is that I have these doubts. So, when you have doubts, um, you can either choose to. Um, surrender to them or choose to challenge them um, and um, I always try to challenge my position um, what am I doing am I on the right path am I on a path sometimes <laughs> I wouldn't even believe that I'm on the right and I cannot say even in retrospect I cannot say that my career was planned in any way Um, but when I look back and I connect the dots, I, I see there was a path there that I, I was unaware of. Um, yeah, I mean, because when you were telling me this, it does, it does feel like you reached a point where you said, like, I have to move on to the next challenge, and this is what makes sense. Like, now you're moving from a startup to the government, which, if you would tell me, it seems like the complete opposite. Or it maybe is. there are similarities, I don't know. <laughs> it What is are some similarities and some differences between both? We also have limited resources. We do. <laughs> we do, and we like to consider ourselves as, a, as the startup of the government. But um, the, the major difference is, um, is the focus of the end game. Um, when I worked in the startup, the focus, the, the target, the, the objectives, everything was sell more, grow your presence, and um, make revenue, like make a profit. So we're not going to be a startup. We'll grow and we'll become a legitimate big business and a service provider. Um, but it's very micro. The shift to, to government was to say, I, as an individual, or a certain specific company, as an individual company, is not as important as the bigger picture. And you look at it at a, uh, on a macro scale. Um, and what was really, what really enabled the shift was that I sat with, uh, with potential clients in the UK, and it didn't matter what pitch I was trying to, to give them and uh, a demo that I was running. All they wanted to talk about is why we're the third Israeli startup that visited them in the last month. How is it that Israeli startups are always so innovative? Uh, why is the Israeli ecosystem? They, like, would, so ask you they, they would ask me questions about Israel okay. and, and about Israeli high tech. Um, and And specifically, we, we did a lot of uh, about cybersecurity and stuff like that. So they asked a lot of those questions, and they were like, and I had answers. And I felt good with those answers, and I felt I could really do something like bigger. I could represent better. Um, and coincidentally, at the same time, uh, the ministry opened its, uh, its cadet course. Um, and uh, my wife, I, I don't know if I should um, blame her for this <laughs> or, or credit her for it, but she saw the advertisement and she said, look, 
it's for you. And I read, I read the job requirements. It's like, wow, this is what I want to do. Actually, like, <laughs> I completely relate because also a lot of my career, I owe it to my wife. <laughs> so I guess that's also something that yes, happens to everyone. <laughs> but this program that you have, so this program is a very special program where they, they receive uh, cadets from uh, a broader range of industries, experiences, uh, everything, but the goal is to have people that represent Israel mm -hmm. in, in trade, in foreign. Right. Yeah. Can right. you tell me a bit more about that? So um, the Foreign Trade Administration, and uh, it's really long, in the Ministry of Economy and Industry, uh, has a cadet program. And what we do is uh, we select on average 12 people every year and a half or two for a three-month program where, uh, like you said, we, we take people from different disciplines. Some of them come from international relations background, some come from uh, law, some come from, uh, from business. Um, all experienced professionals. Um, they're not just fresh graduates, they have some sort of experience uh, um, after graduating. Um, and um, during a very intensive three-month period, they learn a lot. I can't say everything, but a lot about the Israeli economy, the, um, the ecosystem, the investment regimes, um, a lot about uh, diplomacy. And, um, and then they, they join our office for a time of, uh, again, on average two, sometimes three years. Um, for further enhancing their, uh, their knowledge of, um, of uh, economic diplomacy. Um, and then they can choose places in the world where they could serve as commercial attaches. Um, we run 45, if the number changes, but around 45 offices around the world where we have commercial attaches who are diplomats um, that represent, um, represent Israeli industry and Israeli government in, uh, in trade aspects. Uh, and our main mission is to help Israeli exporters reach markets and to help Israeli uh, policy through international organizations. So you're very familiar with that aspect. Yeah, but maybe the audience is not, and this is something that I want to talk about. So there's like two like big strands. The one that is more, uh, I don't know, export promotion. Right. And then the other one that is more policy work, which is the one that you are working on. Right. It's not the most popular one. Not very popular. <laughs> In that. Take you back to your photography in the dark room. <laughs> but that to me is a bit mind boggling because to me that's the one that should be the most popular. Um, yeah, well, you know, said one trade geek to another. <laughs> um, obviously, um, we, we feel it's the most important. And, you know, I think we've also been seeing, especially since COVID, during COVID and since COVID, that. Uh, trade policy is very important um, and the work we do does have an impact um, and in many cases it could be a substantial impact um, but it's um, you know when you when you look around um, and if you want to promote export and you help a specific company or a number of companies let's say there is a um, um, just this week um, we're preparing for two major events in Israel. One is a cyber event and another is a water, water technologies. Um, when you bring foreign buyers uh, and investors and hook them up with uh, Israeli companies, and those Israeli companies, thanks to that connection, they export more, they close a deal, then it's it's amazing. It's amazing to see that the government helps business, um, and it's um, 
sometimes it's faster to see results. When you look at uh, trade policy and you think of how long it takes us to negotiate a bilateral trade agreement or how long it takes us, for example, to negotiate uh, an agreement in the WTO, these things are very, very long. They're very high level. They're, we're, we're flying high at 30,000 feet, uh, enabling trade, enabling um, um, you know, cross-border uh, transfer of information for electronic commerce and all these very big things. But it takes time until they trickle down to business. Um, and I think that's one of the issues. Uh, the, the perspective you have when you work on policy is from a different angle. Yeah, it's more long-term, it's more, it's not specific to, yeah, so I, but to me that has always been, like, natural, but I guess that it's not for everyone, and I guess that where there's that disconnect is where you have, like, these uh, differences. Yeah. But um, I think, you, was, was it your first experience dealing with some of these, like, more bigger negotiations? Was it TISA? Or was, was there an experience prior to that? TISA was my first uh, multilateral or plurilateral. Um, I, um, I, I really, I, I came out to Geneva for the first time just a couple of months or a month after I uh, finished the training. Um, and I, I just came out here um, And I, I really remember that first discussion. I, I think no one can ever be prepared for their first WTO-style <laughs> discussion. And it was a big, big argument about shall and should, um, which is a classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and also there, were, there was a whole session about how to name the initiative, the TISA initiative. Uh, it wasn't TISA at the time. So, um, so after that initial cultural shock, um, I fell in love with the multilateral system. Um, I, I, I love the way it works, and uh, I love the connections that are made. Um, and um, I, I especially love the corridor talks that we have and the uh, unofficial you know, coffees and side, side conversations, um, because you feel you're talking to professionals and that you can get things done and it's, it's inspiring. I think that, that uh, because you were talking about the more long-term view, the, the long-term process that it's not something that happens immediately, but I think that where you find, because it, you may get lost within that, but where you find a way to connect is with the individuals. It's still at the end like a, a pretty personal process And you, you're not going at it alone. You go with a group of people that, mm -hmm. that pretty much remain the same in trade uh, for years. Like the people that you met in TISA, there's still yeah. the people that are involved here. That yeah. is something that is, is quite remarkable. And you see the evolution in their personal lives, in their personal careers, the paths they take, and they're still somehow... Even if they move to a different area, they're still somehow involved with trade and they become like advocates of trade and they will probably be advocates for trade for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's, it, and it's amazing that at the end of the day, the, the, the circles do meet. Uh, like they, they open up here, but they close in a different area. So, um, but, but I had a thought that you said it's interpersonal and I think This is exactly what I love about it. And uh, as I said before, I'm, I've always been attracted to working with people. Add to that the uh, intercultural, um, you know, the, the different cultures we meet here, yeah. the, the people from all over the world. Um, it, it just, it's, it's exciting to, 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 to make these, um, you know, ties. And one example that, um, that comes to mind uh, is um, when I first arrived here, um, we were also uh, negotiating bilaterally with Colombia. 
And um, I was not a lead at the time, but the Colombian lead later on uh, became the representative to TISA. And then when I came for TISA, I knew the Colombian lead. And, uh, and um, we were already friendly because we've already met bilaterally. And then uh, later on, uh, I think he became the DPR. I don't know if it was DPR or the representative here. And I became lead for, uh, for e-commerce. Uh, and we met again. And, and it's just amazing how many times we met in different capacities. And we just had that friendship all, all along. Um, and we would, I think, every round that we met here, we either had lunch or dinner or you know, have some sort of social interaction other than the work interaction. Um, and that's just one, one of the several examples that I can think of here. I, I mean, I, I, I think that sometimes we do take for granted this uh, cultural richness that it's amazing. Sometimes in, the, in one room you have people from 60 countries, 70 countries, and, and they're all different, but they also have some similarities. They I, all believe in trade. They're all here for one purpose. And we still can communicate in a, in a very good and fluid way. But you also have to understand some of the nuances that sometimes uh, mm -hmm. does, you can only learn through experience, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. What are some of the lessons that you learned in TISA, which was his first negotiation mm -hmm. that you're still implementing now? Um, the most basic lesson, and the one I always try to, to teach others, is that it's all about the people. It always has been, and it always will be. Um, the the work uh, about the, the technical work on the text is, is technical, it's legal, um, but getting to an agreement um, is done by collaborating with people. And sometimes um, groups of people. So you have to be able to work with individuals and you have to be able to work with groups and you have to find um, the people that are like-minded, not just on a formal, you know, we are allies on a formal diplomatic uh, state, but, but the people you can work with um, and um, the people that you're, you're happy to see. Um, and I think that's the, that's the biggest lesson that, that I have here. And what are some, which one do you prefer? Uh, do you prefer uh, plurilateral or multilateral? Or the bilateral, which you've done both, like many times. Oh yeah, um, I keep thinking about um, Fezic. Was it Fezic, the Andre the Giant in um, in the Princess Bride? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, one of my favorite movies. So, so think about the scene where he wrestles the man in the black mask. Yeah. And he, he tells him, it's really difficult to wrestle one person once you're used to wrestling several, yeah. right? I think that's, that's the way I feel sometimes. I mean, when you're in a plurilateral or multilateral, <laughs> it's a whole different game than when it's bilateral and you're just two people or a group of two sitting across the table. Uh, so it's different challenges uh, and I like them both because they require different skills. Um, the, the basis, again, is the, the, the interpersonal connection. Uh, but, um, but the details that are required and um, the, um, I guess, the breadth of the, of the material that you need to, to know, um, there's a lot of more focus on you personally in a bilateral context. Whereas in the multilateral context, you can, w one of my favorite things is to see who will raise their flag first and t try to time when I want to raise my flag. <laughs> so I can hear a few more things, hear some more opinions. I can 
talk to my neighbors uh, just before I raise my flag, and I, I always have some more room for thought. Um, but I also feel that when I do say something, it has a bigger impact because there are many more people listening. Um, and I guess it also depends. Uh, if, well, I, I don't know much about bilateral negotiations, but in plurilateral negotiations or multilateral negotiations, it has different stages. Uh, some stages are a bit more expanded in terms of time, and they last longer. But then when you go to the, to the end, everything happens so fast. Yeah. Um, and for example, when you experienced TISA, that unfortunately we were not able to conclude it, how do you, how do you shift gears like from one stage to the other? What are the things that you need to pay attention to? If, um, if I do my job right, and I usually try to, <laughs> um, when you shift gears, you already know your boundaries. So you already have a game plan of what you can commit to and what you can take out. Um, so there aren't supposed to be any surprises. Uh, when, when, we, when we got here for the last round of TISA, um, it was just as there were elections in the US. So the round was split. Uh, it was two days of intensive work of trying to get things done uh, as much as possible. And everyone knew, it, it, like there was a frenzy, but everyone knew their boundaries. And then once we received the outcome of the elections, the, the understanding that, okay, it's probably not going anywhere and we can, we can relax. Um, and still, all the major players um, and everyone we spoke with knew exactly what they were going to give up and what they were going to gain. Um, and I think that's similar to what happens here in other uh, plurilateral agreements. Um, there are no major surprises if you prepare correctly. Um, and it's very similar in bilateral negotiations. It really depends on how much pressure there is to finalize. If it's a bilateral agreement um, that doesn't attract too much political attention, you can just say, you know what, we didn't conclude this time. Let's have another round. Let's do this over VC um, and finalize the details. Um, but it's not that, that case usually. Usually um, when you get to the last round of negotiations, you don't necessarily know it's the last round. You hope it's the last round and you want to finalize as many things as you can. And so there is also that feeling of, of pressure at the end. Um, I, I am a lawyer and I actually I was very influenced when I decided to go to law school because of the books, uh, the novels and TV shows. <laughs> In those TV shows, there's always like the, the lawyer dealing with one case and like he deals with that case through the whole episode. <laughs> I think now that the, it has changed, but there was the lawyer is dedicated to one case through, a, through the whole episode. And I, I want to talk to, about your specific experience. Like you don't have only one thing going on. <laughs> no. You have like many things going on. So it's not like you can devote your attention to only uh, e-commerce, for example, that is ongoing. Uh, you have also bilateral. How do you decide what are your priorities, what you're going to focus on, uh, or is it something that changes as you go? Um, it's a bit of both. Um, the um, biggest issue, of course, is resources. So we have to work with what we can, and it's not much. Um, and then there's also a matter of um, pol political guidance and pressure. Um, and um, we have to take into consideration also other factors um, from not just uh, our ministry, but also other government agencies. Um, and then um, it's a matter of timing. I mean, 
if we look at the e-commerce negotiations, if there is around every six weeks on average, uh, and bilateral negotiations are usually once every four or six months, uh, some partners are more intensive, others are less. Um, so you, you try to put those negotiation rounds as blocks in your calendar and just work with what you have. Um, many of the issues that we deal with are similar. Mm. So there's an overlap. Uh, it's not that I have to learn, not necessarily I have to learn something new every time. Most of the issues that we deal with are already uh, precedented and we, we have some knowledge about them. Um, it's interesting that in this point of time and um, we actually have a lot of new things. So this is, a, this is a new challenge. A lot of new issues that are not just new to Israel, but they're new to trade. Yeah. Um, and, and this is really an exciting time to, yeah. to be discussing, especially in, in the world of e-commerce and cyber and AI and all these uh, new technologies that are emerging and how they will affect trade. And are they actually trade related or is it something that's bigger? Um, and what part of it is in our jurisdiction and not. Uh, so there are a lot of interesting questions coming up. Yeah, I think that, that uh, what you mentioned is also something very, that I guess it, it feels like it was happening when the WTO was created, like something new was coming. Yeah. I don't know if there's many instances where you feel like something new is coming. It feels like this one is one of those. I, I, I agree. I think since I, I specialize in services, so I think for those who negotiated trade and services in the 90s before GATS um, and before the WTO officially began its operations, um, it was all new. This was a whole new emerging world uh, of, of globalization, of services that are, have always been local that started to be traded globally. Um, and we take it very much for granted nowadays. I mean, even in Israel today, um, it makes really a lot of sense to, to get a $100 flight to Europe. I mean, who, who would have thought about that in the 90s? Um, and um, obviously today, when we're post-COVID, um, we use Zoom as a second word for video conference. Before that, video conference was like this big thing. You had to have a video conference room <laughs> and everything was like very dramatic. And is it a secure line or not a secure line? And what can we talk about? Now everyone has Zoom on their phones and we use it a lot. Um, and I'm saying Zoom as a general name for, it became like a general name Your for clinics. any sort of, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's really interesting to, to see how these things are formulating into rules. Um, because it's quite obvious that we need rules. Um, and it's way obvious that regulation is way behind technology. Um, it hasn't always been the case, but now it's extremely the case. And I, I actually sometimes people ask me why I don't do podcasts through video conferences. And that's because I feel that a lot is lost through, through that. It's a great tool and you use it, I use it every day, but a, a lot is lost. You that been negotiating and you use it, do you feel that it will ever replace the personal connection? No, no. Um, I, um, not on a multilateral scale and not on a bilateral. Knowing, and the, at the end of the day, we're going back to the same concept. At the end of the day, it's all about the people. And if it were that simple that we could do it on video conference, then we could do it by emails. <laughs> we, we didn't need to meet. I mean, I I could send you a document and write up some comments, and you can respond, and we can finalize that. If it was that simple, that's what we would have been doing. But it's not. You have to come to to a negotiating table willing to listen, willing to understand, to, to understand your partner's needs and 
to, to be able to explain your own and see where, where they fit. That's why there are no two agreements that are the same. Um, if, we, if we could use a template, then we, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't need to negotiate. Okay, and last thing, be, before we go to a new section that I don't know if you're aware, I have a new section in the podcast, but before we go to that, okay. how do you explain, because I'm curious, I, I'm around people who are involved in trade like all the time, but sometimes when I go to parties and people don't know about trade, how do you explain to them, or sometimes even your family if they're not involved in trade, how do you explain to them what you do and why is it important? Um, Are they even like curious about it when you mention, I work in trade, I negotiate trade agreements for Israel? I, I think most of the people I meet that are not involved don't understand the concept of trade, although they do understand the concept of, uh, of commerce, if, if I could put it that way. Um, I mean, people obviously understand that you can supply a service. And let, let, let's put that disclaimer here again. I mostly deal with trade and services, and I deal with e-commerce. So these are more abstract than uh, goods. goods, than trading goods. So trading goods is, in my view, very easy to explain. Uh, but services is more complex. But then... I use examples, and um, you know, all of my family, in this way or another, are service providers. Right? None of my family members produces goods, but I have a, a brother who's a, a CEO of a high-tech company, and I have a brother who's a photographer, and my wife is a psychologist. So. Um, these are all services. And once you start explaining what international trade and services is by using examples, um, then it just makes it much easier. Uh, and then it kind of becomes fun because you, I always get these questions like, okay, so if I want to work in the US and, and if I want to bring my business there and, if I, and, and people start you know, relating. Um, and uh, it, then it becomes interesting. Yeah, through examples and through making it that personal to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so now we okay. go to the new section. Oh, wow. I don't know if you... So this is a section where I ask you uh, several questions, but you have to respond uh, with what comes up to mind first. <laughs> They're simple questions, but, I mean, we have a couple. Okay. You ready? Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Listen more than you talk. What's the best advice you've ever given? Learn how to listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should separate those questions. Yeah. <laughs> Put them farther apart. What's profe what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, I'm actually doing something right now, which we haven't talked about. I, uh, I studied coaching and um, I'm, I'm starting, starting to practice as a life coach. And I just love working with people. Um, so so that's, that's another thing I'm going to be doing. So that's something that you do like on your free time? Yeah. And you want to do more? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that counts. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you wish you had known 20 years ago? Um, that things work out. Yeah, actually that, that thing that you said is pretty common. Well, this is the third time I've asked it, but it, it seems to come up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is true because sometimes you think that it's the end of the, of the world when something happens and you don't realize that. And it will just work out, like don't worry too much. Yeah, I, I think if we, if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, and I told you I have a lot of doubts. So I didn't always understand that these doubts could also be a source of motivation. And now that I understand that things work out, um, then I, I embrace these doubts and I see where they can take me. Yeah. 
Pineapple in pizza? Sure. <laughs> Drama or comedy? Drama okay. or comedy? Ah, uh, comedy. Yeah. Uh, who's your favorite artist of all time? My favorite artist of all times. That's a tough one. Ansel Adams. Ah, uh -huh, yeah. Not so much advice, but if you could recommend one thing that you enjoy, what is it? Um, one thing that I enjoy. I don't have a good answer for that one because if I say ice cream, I'm not sure it's a good thing to. <laughs> it is. Not as advice. I'm always. I, I love food. Yeah, but not so much I, advice. Just something that you would like to recommend. Ice cream. Um, have more ice cream. More ice cream, but generally, um, good food, special food, um, authentic food. You know, um, things that you don't just get off the shelf. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the last one. How would you like to be remembered? Um, as a people person, someone who, who touched people, affected their lives. Well, Nir, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for indulging me in this uh, conversation. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great. This was the wonderful Rivas project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?